hello, everyone, and welcome to our podcast series, the title, Listen to the Experts, Targeted Temperature Management. What we're trying to do is bring in experts from all over the country that have experience with therapeutic hypothermia and targeted temperature management to discuss key questions that are in the field right now, as well as new challenges. Now, first, I'd like to um, uh, thank Zoll for supporting this uh, podcast. My name is Dalton Dietrich, and I'm at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. And today's title for our topic is specifically Temperature Management Matters, Past, Present, and Future. So it's, it's, my, it's my pleasure to introduce our special guest today, Dr. Nicholas Johnson, Dr. Dr. Nick Johnson, who is a associate professor uh, and head of the section of critical care, Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Washington, and associate professor of medicine, uh, division of pulmonary care and medicine at the Harborview uh, Medical Center. Nick, good seeing you today. Thank you for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. I've been reading some of your papers and of course, uh, a lot of interest in cardiac arrest as well as, well as my, uh, myocardial infarction two areas where targeted temperature management is really an important area. So as I said, today we're going to talk, talk about the past, the present, and the future. And we'll start with the past. Of course, hypothermia has been thought about for in ancient times and, and more recently uh, turned to um, utilizing small changes in temperature to affect cardiac arrest. So I guess we'll start at what do you think is the impact of the uh, previous clinical trials? And you know, in the impact of, uh, for example, TT1, TTM1, uh, that actually kind of put us in a, a loop in terms of where we're going with uh, hypothermic therapy. Yeah, I think there have been a lot of interesting questions raised since the first two big clinical trials on cardiac arrest in humans in 2002, uh, the Bernard and the Hacka studies, which really kind of put um, therapeutic hypothermia or TTM on the map for clinical use in cardiac arrest. Um, the, after those trials, uh, you know, there was a pretty broad change in guidelines from the American Heart Association and others, uh, and, and fairly decent implementation of therapeutic hypothermia, at least in the shockable rhythm population. And then in 2013, uh, when TCM, the first trial came out, uh, it really kind of threw a lot of people who were using this therapy in regular clinical practice for a loop. Um, I think uh, there were multiple interpretations to that trial. Um, one potential interpretation is that the intervention doesn't work at all, uh, and therefore we shouldn't worry about managing temperature uh, after cardiac arrest. And, and the other is that the goal temperature and the dose of TTM is really uncertain. Um, and I think what we've seen since that time period is that because of that variable interpretation of the results of the first TTM trial, implementation of TTM in the real world, which is something that we described in, in one of our recent papers, has been highly variable as well. Uh, ranging from no temperature management at all and allowing fever, which we still think is is bad in any form of ischemia reperfusion injury, uh, to just changing temperature goals, which may or may not be appropriate given the patient in front of us. Uh, and so I think uh, uh, the dose of TTM was still really uncertain after that first TTM trial. Yeah, I was really uh, interested in your paper where, you know, you actually compared, uh, you know, previous studies where um, 33 degrees was used and then after that, um, people were not uh, utilizing a very critical temperature control. And actually, um, patients did worse. 
That's right. Yeah. So we looked at our health system, which um, sort of set up for itself a natural uh, natural experiment. We were on a 33 degree protocol uh, from around the time of the original Bernard and Hacka trials in 2002, all the way up until 2014. And then after TTM, the first trial was published, we switched to 36 degrees for a period of time. And then we looked back at our data and actually found that our absolute mortality had gone up by about 10%, um, that there was less use of TTM early in the patient's course. So in the emergency department, uh, there was more fever, less active temperature management. And so I think um, despite our protocol saying uh, we are going to manage every patient's temperature aggressively to a goal of 36 degrees during that period, uh, a lot of clinicians uh, devalued the importance of temperature management as, as a result of uh, interpreting that trial, uh, which I think is probably the wrong interpretation, uh, and we were being less aggressive about managing patient's temperature. Uh, I think it's also possible uh, and pretty likely that there are some other interventions that track with temperature that might have changed over time, and it's also possible that our patient characteristics changed over time, and we did our best to account for those things, um, but with a retrospective study, there are some of those types of limitations. Yes, and so, so many papers um, have been written on the TTM1 trial. I mean, the, the principal investigators, the authors of that paper, really didn't, were not telling us to throw out uh, targeted temperature management, but that was the interpretation that so many people had. And of course, it's, it's, it's expensive. I mean, you have to have uh, equipment, you have to have the personnel to actually do these things. So hospitals, I assume, you could tell me, are always looking ways to kind of trim the budget and if it doesn't work, why utilize this technology? Yeah, I think that's right. And, and I think that, you know, there's the, the actual cost and then there's the um, uh, additional costs that go along with just keeping patients in the ICU deeply sedated and intubated and mechanically ventilated for longer than you otherwise might. Um, I actually think that's one of the benefits of, of TTM is it slows down the post-arrest care process and forces us to wait a little bit to allow patients some time um, to undergo an appropriate series of neuroprognostic tests rather than a rush to conclusions. Um, uh, but I could see from a you know hospital administrator perspective or other folks who are being conscious about costs that that could be a potential downside. Okay, so now we move to the present. Um, misconception, misconceptions of the current trial. We have the new, new learnings from TTM2 that just came out. And again, the, the field is filled with uh, comments and things of this nature talking about that. So what, do you, what is your take-home message in terms of the TTM2 trial and the results that were just published? Yeah, I, th I think the first thing to say is that uh, this was an incredibly well-done trial. Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, the investigators were meticulous in every way and really thought of um, everything that a trialist could dream of and then some to the point of even writing you know, two blinded versions of the manuscript before seeing the results so that uh, it didn't they didn't bias their writing when they actually were able to see the results of their study. Um, and a lot of other really uh, just nice features of the trial, including a really detailed neuroprognostication protocol um, to ensure that was standardized between the two arms. So I think, you know, overall, the, the trial is very well done. Um, I think the couple of uh, questions I still have after the trial um, are one, this is a cohort of patients uh, that looks very different from my typical cardiac arrest patient. Uh, it was a patient population that was vast majority shockable cardiac rhythm. Uh, and the incidence of, of VF in the US has been going down over time and, and PA and asystole has been increasing as the predominant initial rhythm in out of hospital cardiac arrest. Uh, and at my hospital, about 60% of our cardiac arrests are PA or asystole. Uh, there were 
a lot of other really favorable characteristics that these patients had. Uh, they were virtually all witness arrests. The bystander CPR rates were very, very high. And so one question with any trial is, um, you know, whether those results generalize to your patient population. Um, I think it's, it's true that these results are internally valid. They certainly uh, methodologically answered that question, but I don't know that I can say confidently that the results of the trial apply to my very different looking patient population at this point. Uh, do you think um, do you think the way we cool patients is, is important? I mean, there's a lot of new technologies out there in terms of uh, rapid cooling or being more precise in terms of hitting that temperature target, which may be extremely important as well. And of course, that rewarming phase, being able to really control that over a period of time to make sure that um, the patient's not being rewarmed too fast or there's overshoot and things of this nature. So how does technology uh, uh, go into this discussion? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that, that that's one of the concerns that people have raised about TTM2. Um, they had a, a pretty even mix of surface and endovascular devices. Their time to target temperature, um, which isn't actually stated explicitly in the paper as far as I can find, but you can kind of extrapolate from their temperature curve. Uh, it was about eight hours in the 33 degree arm. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are some people who believe that's too long. Um, there's certainly um, a lot of data going back to the 1950s that if you have your cardiac arrest in either an animal model or um, in the operating room under controlled circumstances, if you start cooling before the arrest happens, uh, patients do fairly well. Uh, and there's some data uh, showing that if you cool patients faster uh, after cardiac arrest, they do better than if you don't. Um, and then there are also some data to the opposite. Uh, one of my good friends, Sarah Perman, wrote a paper showing that time to cooling was actually not associated with better outcome and potentially a marker of worse hypothalamic injury. Um, and so I, I think that's another question mark, whether the time to cooling was too long in this paper um, and whether that was because of the devices that were used or just the, the time it takes to enroll and randomize a patient, get a device placed and um, overcome their um, you know, shivering and all the other things to get them down to goal temperature. Uh, it's hard to say, but I, I do think that uh, I and a lot of other people are really interested in this idea of trying to close that interval from return of spontaneous circulation to the time we're able to get patients cool to see if that makes a difference. Uh, one of the things that we talked about a lot, um, you know, over 15 years ago when we did the first uh, uh, therapeutic hypothermia uh, trial in uh, severe traumatic brain injury, that they looked like there was site-specific differences in terms of patients did well or not. Do you think uh, we've now standardized the therapy enough that um, it, it's it's pretty it's being used consistently from center to center? Uh, I, I think for the trial they did a pretty good job, or at least it seems like they did a pretty good job um, standardizing their approaches and had a pretty good clinical standardization guideline. Um, I think in, in clinical practice, absolutely not. I think there's still a lot of variation, um, even within a single region from hospital to hospital, uh, as to how this therapy is deployed, uh, ranging from, you know, a few systems have pre-hospital cooling uh, out there still. Uh, the numbers of devices and techniques to do that are limited. Um, many places don't cool in the emergency department, so patients don't get started until they're admitted to the ICU, which can be many hours after their arrest. Uh, there's a wide range of devices, wide range of target temperatures, wide range of durations. And so I think um, one of the challenges in translating a clinical trial like TTM2 to the real world is uh, the real world practices all over the map. Very good. Thank you very much. 
Okay, let's turn our attention now to the future. I mean, uh, there's going to be a lot of people still wondering about how best to use uh, target temperature management in their patient populations. And that brings us to the ICECAP trial. Can you tell us a little bit about the, what the ICECAP trial, what the goals are, and what's, what's really new about utilizing uh, new technologies and new adaptive clinical trials to target this very complicated clinical problem? Yeah, so the ICECAP trial um, on the surface is a, a relatively straightforward design, but there's a lot more behind the, the mm -hmm. curtain. Um, really, it's a trial of, of TTM duration. Uh, it's an adaptive design randomized trial that has the ability to randomize patients to different durations of cooling to a goal of 33 degrees, ranging from six hours all the way out to 72 hours. And the interesting part about the trial is, um, yes, it will, it's looking to find the optimal duration in all comers without a possible cardiac arrest, but uh, a secondary objective is to establish a dose response curve um, and really be able to understand if there is a dose response and also to understand whether there's heterogeneity of treatment effects in different patient populations, namely a non-shockable cardiac arrest uh, population compared to a shockable arrest population. Um, so it's, it's trying to accomplish a lot of different things. Uh, though on the surface just looks like a, an adaptive design randomized trial of different durations. So the adaptive randomization means what specifically when you when you do your first series of patients and then you start utilizing that new approach to, to put different patients in different slots, for example. Yeah, that's right. So there was a run-in period uh, where uh, 200 patients were enrolled um, and they were equally allocated between three arms, uh, 12, 24, and 48 hours. And if the longer durations uh, start to look better, uh, more patients get allocated to progressively long arms. Um, and if the shorter ones uh, look better, then more patients get allocated in the other direction to shorter durations. And the advantage of this is it's a really efficient trial design, and it ideally would prevent patients from getting allocated to any arms that are potentially not beneficial to them. So in this trial, are we getting more and more to the um, term specialized medicine? And whether you know each patient could be potentially treated specifically for injury severity or how they're doing or, or comorbidities and things of this nature. I think that's uh, this is a step in that direction. Um, I think there are a lot of people who are curious about whether um, there's even more individualizing we can do based on specific patient phenotypes or biomarkers or arrest profiles, and whether there's a lot more heterogeneity than it's uh, possible to parse out in these large randomized trials. Um, and this is a step in that direction. I think yeah, if we um, end up finding that two different populations of cardiac arrest patients respond very differently to the therapy. Uh, that's a really interesting and novel thing. And perhaps the reason we've not seen signals in a lot of the other big trials is because we've lumped a lot of different types of patients uh, who in reality are very different together. Very good. Well, thank you very much for your comments. This has been an interesting discussion. I think we've covered several very important areas and um, I'm really looking forward. When is the final results of the ICECAP study coming out? Uh, we're still pretty early. Uh, I, I think there, you know, there are over 200 patients enrolled, but I think we've got a few more years before we're going to hear anything. Okay, very good. And um, patient recruitment, that's not a problem? Uh, you know, I, you have to talk to the overall PIs for the trial, uh, mm -hmm. but I, I think that uh, things slowed down a little bit with COVID, but we've been able to maintain consistent enrollment throughout, and now a lot more sites are up and running again, um, and uh, I hope we're on track. Okay, very good. Well, uh, thank you, Nick. Thank you very much, Dr. Nick Johnson, um, for uh, participating in this podcast. We thank, again, Zoll for supporting the podcast. My name is Dalton Dietrich, and um, hope to see you next time. And until then, stay cool. Take care. Bye.